Hello and welcome to episode 154 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from South Wales is shocking for a number of reasons. The sheer brutality of what happened, made worse by the fact it was a case of mistaken identity. But before we go there, a big thank you as always to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of our special group. That's Dan Lawler, Drew McKee and Lara Davidson. Thank you all so much for your support, it is so much appreciated. If you haven't looked at my website recently at uktruecrime.com, do take a look at my latest blog about whether we take revenge porn seriously enough. Let's briefly set some context for today's story by taking a quick look at the music we were listening to, or not, on the date of today's events, Sunday the 8th of March 2015. Ellie Golding topped the UK music charts with Love Me Like You Do, keeping Hosier with Take Me to Church from the top spot. It's the rare case of a song I really used to like, but now can't listen to, as it reminds me too much of my sister's death. Do you have a similar song that you can't listen to? The US top spot was held by Mark Ronson, featuring Bruno Mars with Uptown Funk. Top album this week in Australia was the soundtrack of Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh my goodness, what a terrible movie that was. I think I'd rather watch a Lord of the Rings film. Or even the Kings of Leon live, wouldn't you? Hmm, actually, a bit rash, maybe not. In the news this month, Harrison Ford crash-landed his plane in California. There were tears and anger in many teenage bedrooms as Zayn Malik announced he was leaving One Direction. Jeremy Clarkson was suspended from Top Gear after his fracas with a producer over a hot dinner. And Richard III of England, who lived from 1452 to 1485, was reburied at Leicester Cathedral after his remains were discovered under a car park in Leicester in 2012. In cricket, Australia beat New Zealand to win their fifth World Cup. And in UK true crime news, former TV weather presenter Fred Talbot was sent to prison for five years after his conviction for indecently assaulting two boys while he worked at a school in Greater Manchester. Today's story is from Porth Call, a coastal town in South Wales around halfway between Cardiff and Swansea. The natural area around Porthcawl is beautiful, with some stunning beaches and good surfing. But like many seaside communities in the UK, the town can appear a little tired, and the number of visitors is way down, especially since the closure of the South Wales coal mines. When the mines are employing so many local people, it was the miners' fortnight when so many workers took their holidays that Porthcawl was really packed and bustling. But there is still tourism today as people come to walk the promenade, explore the harbour area, catch a show at the Grand Pavilion and spend some time at the Coney Beach Fun Fair. There are lots of hotels and B&Bs, but most tourists stay at the large caravan park owned by Park Dean Resorts known as Treco Bay. You know the sort of place, somewhere which, although not exactly cheap, is affordable for many people, especially with young children with pools and activities on site, and you can see as many as four generations of families holidaying together. It also appeals to another group, younger adults looking for a weekend or a few days away with their mates, 
and someone like Porthcawl is particularly appealing due to the large number of pubs and bars that lie in the coast in that area. So at 6.40am on the morning of Sunday the 8th of March, the holidaymaker at Treco Bay assumed the groaning sounds that had woken him up were a drunk under his static caravan who had passed out there after a night on the beer. When he went outside, he saw items scattered on the park roadway and spots of blood, and then the legs of a man sticking out from beneath the caravan, barely moving. He called 999. The man he had seen he later discovered was 18-year-old Connor Marshall. When the emergency services arrived, Connor was rushed to hospital, although paramedics were not hopeful of his chances of survival, as he was unresponsive to their treatment, with one describing his injuries as the worst he'd ever seen. The weekend shouldn't have ended like this. Connor and his two friends had gone away for the weekend to have some fun, to hit some bars and play some amusements. The day before, Connor, who was seen as a friendly, popular and compassionate man, with a warm, infectious smile, along with a cheeky wink, had left the family home in nearby Barry. His mum, Nadine, later told the BBC how she recalled it being just another weekend as she waved him off, saying, It was the usual, have fun, stay safe. He was really excited. He was buzzing. He was in a really good place in his life. He told her he'd be back early the next day on Sunday the 8th of March to celebrate her birthday. So when there was a knock at the door just before 7.30am the next morning, she assumed it was Connor. I did say to Rich, Connor's dad, that's very early for Connor. In my head, I thought that maybe he hadn't been to bed yet and come straight home. But it was the knock on the door that every parent dreads, and on the doorstep stood two solemn-looking police officers. Straight away my heart dropped. They asked if I was the mum of Connor. They said there'd been an incident that Connor was involved in and that he was on his way to the hospital. The family raced to the hospital in Cardiff to be with Connor, where they were told he was in recess with life-threatening injuries. They just had to wait in a small private room, alone with their thoughts and fears, and hope and pray for good news. When they eventually got to see their son, Nadine was shocked. I remember seeing Connor and not even recognising him, she said. He was just a mess. I remember praying shouting at Connor, shaking him, pleading with him. I could deal with any situation, just as long as he woke up, as long as he was okay. That image, that's the flashbacks that I still get, she said later. The noise, the smell. Connor was on the bed of a big red cradle to keep his neck and his head still. He just looked horrific. His face was just a mass of blue bruising and blood. He'd a huge big gash on the top of his forehead. His lips were so swollen they were stopping him breathing through his nose. He had tubes and pipes and it was just awful. There wasn't a piece of face that wasn't bruised or bloodied. And he had this hole in the side of his face, which we knew later was from the metal pole he'd been attacked with. When they pulled the blanket across, you could see footprints on his torso. He was hypothermic and they'd heaters blowing on him to try and warm him up. I was asking the doctors repeatedly, he's going to be okay, isn't he? He's going to be okay. The lead doctor said to us, 
You need to understand that he's not in a good place. He's very, very poorly. We're doing what we can. It was like being spoken to in another language. But it got worse and worse as they desperately tried to comprehend what they were seeing. They knew that their son had been brutally attacked, although the police were unsure why. And then it looked as if Connor had not even had the opportunity to defend himself. The dean said, I remember the detective saying, if you look at his hands there are no marks, that means there was no fight. It was just something else to take on. And the news remained bleak. 24 hours later, the doctor told them that Connor was not responding as they'd hoped. And four days after the attack was the worst possible outcome when Connor, this vibrant young man with everything to live for, died. He was just 18 years old. As Connor's parents waited at the hospital, detectives were trying to find his killer and quickly worked out Connor's movements on the day he was attacked. On coming back from a nearby sports bar on the Saturday night, Connor, a keen photographer, had told his two pals to go back to the caravan without him as he wanted to head to the beach to take some shots. And what happened next is what detectives wanted to discover. Aware that time was of the essence, due to the transient nature of visitors to a caravan park, they quickly visited over 200 caravans, looking for witnesses, as well as speaking to his friends about what had happened that night. The CCTV coverage was good, and it showed Connor buying beer in a shop with friends, before leaving a bar on site and heading to a sports bar in town. The three were captured again, leaving that bar at the end of the evening, before heading back to the caravan at around 2am. Detectives clarified that there were no incidents in the bar, so this didn't appear to be a revenge attack. And around 30 minutes after they came back to the site, CCTV showed Connor walking around outside, on his own, on his way back towards his caravan. This backed up what his friends had told detectives. There was also one other key piece of evidence discovered by police at the scene of the caravan where Connor was found. There was a blood-stained metal pole and the analysis of the pole showed that the blood was Connor's and a fingerprint on it belonged to someone very well known to them. 26-year-old local man David Braddon. He had a number of convictions including assaulting a policeman, drugs and animal cruelty and they quickly discovered that he too had been staying at the caravan park that weekend. But when detectives went to his house, there was no sign of him. CCTV gave them an indication of his movements, showing him leaving Treco Bay Caravan Park by car early Sunday morning, before being dropped at Caffili Station, just a few miles away, the next day. From there he headed to the north of England via London, and then to an aunt's house in Glasgow. Sadly for Braddon, in terms of evading the authorities, he was no Ted Bundy. When detectives were at his mum's house, he called her on the phone, and although she asked him to turn himself in to answer questions about Connor, he refused to do so. It didn't take detectives long to find him, and when police turned up at his aunt's house in Glasgow, a day after Connor's death, the big man was hiding behind the sofa. His first words to detectives were, is the boy dead? And what he told detectives was truly shocking. 
He said he hadn't meant to kill Connor. He'd never met him before. It had been a case of mistaken identity. Father of three, Braddon, was staying at Treco Bay with his girlfriend, Victoria, when he discovered that, coincidentally, his girlfriend's ex-partner was also staying at the caravan park the same weekend as Connor was visiting with friends. Braddon didn't like her ex and didn't like the fact he was staying at the same place. Using Victoria's phone, he had sent the ex text messages, pretending to be her, hoping to lure him into a confrontation so he could attack him. But unbeknown to Braddon, the ex had clocked him earlier in the day and knowing his reputation, was determined to stay well out of his way, a decision that probably saved his life. When the ex didn't respond to his fake messages, Braddon got more and more agitated. This wasn't helped by the fact that he had taken 50 Valium tablets, as well as cocaine and alcohol. He had a bad back and the Valium helped, but that weekend, Braddon was losing control and ended up taking the whole packet, telling detectives that he was, I quote, out of his head. After receiving no response from Victoria's ex, Braddon thought he would get proactive and track Victoria's ex down. So he went outside and he wandered the caravan site in a highly agitated and aggressive mood, looking for aggro. When questioned by detectives, Braddon told how he first came across Connor, saying during the police interviews, he was walking ahead of me the first time I recall him. He just turned around. There was like no one else about. It was darkness. Started saying, I don't know. Started arguing, swearing and that. He started swearing back, so I just assumed it was him. We started fighting and it just got out of control. I smacked his legs once or twice. I didn't want to cause him serious damage. I wanted to humiliate him. So I stripped his clothes, chucked his clothes on top of the caravans, punched him one more time, and that was that. I got my phone out and checked his face. He started speaking. I thought he'd get up and I panicked and went. But it was only after he used his phone to check him after the attack that he realised that the person he'd assaulted was the wrong man. When he returned to the caravan with blood on his face, he admitted to Victoria that he'd beaten up a boy and then went to sleep. Having never been involved in any form of violence, I wonder how people can live lives where violence is such a big part of their life, don't you? During police interviews, Braddon happily admitted that he went out that night intending to have a fight, but... To quote him again, his mind wasn't to kill someone. He later admitted he went over the top in the attack. Braddon was charged with Connor's murder and faced trial for his actions. At his trial, it transpired that at the time of the attack, Braddon was under supervision for previous offences, part of a system which aims to rehabilitate criminals in the community but Connor's family were astonished to find that the man who they believed had killed their son was also on curfew and ordered to attend anti-drugs and alcohol meetings but had missed eight appointments. Yes, eight appointments with no good reason. But no further action was taken against him. 
QC Edwards, defending him, said, He makes no excuses for his actions and deeply regrets the heartache he has caused Mr Marshall's family. The family of Connor Marshall will suffer from this point on, but it's also the case the family of David Braddon will suffer for what he did. The defendant did not set out to kill that night, he set out to cause actual bodily harm. That's alright then. The judge, Justice Wynne Williams, sentenced Braddon to a minimum of 20 years in prison. This was greeted by clapping and cheers of relief by friends and family of Connor in the courtroom. The judge told Braddon, Having beaten him, you sought to humiliate him. You used weapons, you then decided to flee, and you attempted to evade arrest. He said the higher sentence was due to aggravating factors which included the degree of planning, the high degree of physical suffering inflicted, the use of weapons, and the defendant's intention to humiliate his victim. As Braddon was led to the cells, friends and relations of Connor applauded. Braddon, defiant, if that's the word, to the end, gave them a thumbs-up sign, and as his supporters left the court building, one of them threw a bottle at a journalist. We see this a lot, don't we? All the defence around feeling remorse and regret from the defendant and their supporters, then reverting to form and acting like utter twats again after sentencing. In a statement read outside court, Connor's mum Nadine said their family had been left traumatised by what had happened. This callous, senseless and unprovoked attack has traumatised our entire family and many friends, she said. No family should ever have to endure the sickening ordeal that we now find ourselves in. Sadly, our lives will never be the same. They released the harrowing photographs of his injuries to show the savage beating he suffered as he lay, his life ebbing away, on a life support machine. Nadine said, Today marks the beginning of David Braddon spending a considerable amount of time behind bars. He's sustained a horrific attack on our son, Connor. Connor was only 18, with a future full of hopes and dreams. He was handsome, kind and caring, and very much loved by us, his family and his many friends. It's impossible to express the hurt, anger and sadness that we each feel continuously. Connor is deeply missed and will always be in our thoughts. Speaking further after the trial, Nadine said that the trauma of losing her son in such a brutal way left her with post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety and flashbacks. She had not been able to return to work. It's getting used to that tight belt around my tummy that gets tighter. And this can even be brought on by a siren on a TV drama. It takes you right back to that moment. The smells, the sounds. It's horrible. It's terrifying. The Dean said she believed the worst was yet to come. I don't even think I've started real grieving. I know it hasn't got as big or as horrible as it's going to be. I just see it as a big hole and I'm teetering on the edge of that hole all the time. I know I need to go right down into the bottom of that hole and come out. I will get out, but for me, that is such a scary thought. Following his death, his mum felt that although Connor had been in favour of organ donation, from the age of 16. The manner of his death meant he'd been through enough trauma. But his parents changed their mind. 
Connor had a tattoo on his arm reading Life Goes On, which was significant in their decision making. His mum Nadine said, For us that was very poignant, being given the opportunity to support Connor's decision to donate his organs felt like a great opportunity to allow this to happen, to allow Connor's life to go on to someone else. His injuries were so severe that only his liver and kidneys could be donated, but that went on to save the lives of three people. But whereas the organ donation was one positive from such a terrible event, unfortunately, the response from the authorities was depressingly familiar. Something we have heard so often on this podcast. Connor's parents felt in the dark about the details of what had happened to their son, and also why Braddon had been free to attack Connor when he had missed so many appointments. Under pressure from Connor's family, the Ministry of Justice finally released a summary of their report on Braddon. Again, to expect the full report when they clearly screwed up so badly wasn't an option. Why do authorities treat us like this when they work for us? It's beyond me. Every time we see an official report, it's the same, isn't it? But this report in summary said that Braddon was being monitored by probation workers after he was convicted for drugs offences and assaulting a police officer. It also confirmed he had missed some follow-up appointments and there were times that staff could have, I quote, monitored his community order more robustly, end quotes. From the trial onwards, Connor's parents were so respectful as they campaigned to find out just what had happened to their son. Their energy and persistence finally paid off in October last year, when they were eventually allowed a full inquest into the death of their son. In the summer of 2019, it was announced that this will begin on the 10th of January next year, so I will ensure I keep you fully informed on that. Speaking after this news, Connor's mum said, I'm just relieved that we're actually moving forward now. It's good to see that we've now actually got a date. So what do you make of what we've heard today? As we know, most people are killed by someone they knew, so to be murdered by a total stranger is incredibly shocking to hear. And combined with the fact it was a case of mistaken identity makes it even worse. At least his parents have now got a full inquest next year, but they should never have had to fight quite so hard to get the basics, don't you think? If you want to support the family, there is a crowd justice site where you can donate. A link is in the show notes. I do feel for Braddon's family and his three children in particular, who've been devastated by his actions. But of course, our real sympathies must lie with the family and friends of Connor. For losing Connor, who at just 18 had his whole life ahead of him to live. It's just so unfair. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please head over to the Facebook group where you'll be made very, very welcome. There are now almost 4,000 of us. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime to find 36 full-length bonus episodes, my latest video and other exclusive content. It helps keep the lights on, so if you can support me, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. 
So that's all from me for today. I'm off to walk the dogs in the rain and the mud, keeping my eyes peeled in the bushes, of course. And not just for doggers. But that's all from me for today. So until we speak again next week, or sooner if you're a Patreon supporter, thank you for listening, and remember, stay classy.